This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, while death rates are falling for blacks and Hispanics in middle age, whites are dying prematurely in growing numbers, particularly white women. Since the turn of this century, death rates have risen for white women in midlife. One reason, a big increase in overdoses, primarily from opioids, but also from anti-anxiety drugs, which are often prescribed in tandem. Here with more on all of this is, is Gina Marafa. She's a clinical toxicologist with Upstate's New York Poison Center. Welcome, Gina. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So white middle-aged women are overdosing on opioids and other drugs. Tell us what you know about that. So this has been a trend that's been increasing over the past several years. Um, and it's scary when you look at the statistics of who's actually dying. What we know, there's a few things that we know for sure. Um, the first thing that we know for sure is that poisoning deaths are the leading cause of unintentional deaths in this country right now, wow. um, which is really scary when you put that into perspective comparatively to other causes of death. Um, and we know a lot of what we're seeing is that when you say overdose, it's really the unintentional overdose. So it's people or patients who are prescribed or abusing opioids, usually with some type of drug like a benzodiazepine, like Valium or Xanax, and they're taking them together. And at some point, they're increasing their dose for whatever reason. Um, and then they die. And so they take what they think is their regular dose. They either add a second drug in with that. So whether it be a benzodiazepine or alcohol, and then the next morning they're found um, dead in bed. What's the mechanism for how these drugs actually do that though? So both, so when you think about opioids or narcotic drugs, so things like oxycodone or hydrocodone or even heroin, they work for pain for sure. Um, and then, but they also do things where they make you very sleepy to as severe as coma. And then they also slow your respiratory rate down to the point where you stop breathing. Um, and then when you add other things that work very similarly, Benzodiazepines, for example, they make you either anywhere from sleepy to a coma, and they slow your respiratory rate, very similar to alcohol. And when you combine one or more things that all have that end result of slowing your respiratory rate, you stop breathing. So, and that's really what's resulting in all of these people dying. That's incredible. So basically, is there a kind of um, augmentative effect? In other words, if you take the opioid, that alone is going to slow your breathing, and then you add on the benzo, basically that makes it even doubly bad. Exactly, exactly. So opioids in and of themselves can make you stop breathing, but then when you add a benzo or add alcohol or other drugs that are central nervous system depressants, the end result can be catastrophic. So let me take a step to the side for a minute mm -hmm. and help us understand what exactly currently is the problem, both locally and nationally, with opioid abuse? What's going on? So we know that we are in an epidemic and a public health threat with opioid-addicted patients and opioid abuse. Um, this is We see this in Onondaga County. We see this in the 54 counties that the Poison Center covers, and we see this nationally. Um, this has been an ongoing upward trend for the past several years. Um, it largely probably started when opioid narcotics or analgesics were prescribed and increased their 
increased the number of prescriptions. For several years, the number one or the top prescription dispensed in this country was hydrocodone. Wow. Um, and so we, we have now seen a whole group of people that have now become addicted, dependent on opioids. And as we know, there's been a lot of legislation to try to combat that and to try to really fix the problem. Things like prescription monitoring programs like iStop in New York State. Um, but it's still, because of these programs, which are hugely beneficial, we still have a, a great population of people that are addicted to opioids. So let me take you back for a second. Mm -hmm. So basically, I understand that at one point, and probably was around the 1970s, there was a shift in the medical thinking in terms of, you know, in a way coming from perhaps a humanitarian position of people should not suffer mm -hmm. from pain. And so there was this movement toward more liberally or liberalizing the the um, di the dispensing of drugs, opioid type drugs, but it seems like it's become more uh, intensified, as you said, in the last several years in terms of people being hooked on these drugs. Mm -hmm. So, and what, give us kind of a feeling for what a natural evolution would be. So, someone injures their back, or they have, in some cases, even a tooth extracted. Mm -hmm and they're given these opioids, who is going to be the person, for example, who's going to become addicted and why, would you say? So that's a, you make a great point about thinking about who's, who's using these drugs. Really in the 1990s, pain became the fifth vital sign. And it was really something that a lot of people paid close attention to. And the question of no pain is acceptable. And that's probably really where we got into trouble with this. And it's really not, a little pain is good. Um, and what we've seen now is that people will come to the hospital, they'll go to the dentist, and they get prescriptions for 30 or 60 pills for a narcotic pain reliever. Um, and in reality, most people probably only need an opioid for a very short period of time. And actually, opioids only have been proven to work for acute pain. So the first day, two, three days after a painful injury. And there's new data coming out showing that even a teenager, when they get their first prescription of an opioid, even if it is for a painful procedure, they, have, they are at higher risk for developing addiction, independence, intolerance. So you're right. I think it's we all got into that sense of that everyone needed opioids and large quantities of opioids, and now we're in this epidemic where there's a large number of people that are addicted to opioids. But in fact, it must have been at some point that the healthcare world was complicit in renewing these prescriptions over time, long after the offending problem, except in cases of chronic pain. And I think that's probably where you run into issues, where somebody has a chronic back problem that, that is not reparable, or they, they're avoiding surgery, or maybe surgery is not the answer. Exactly. And actually, when you think about chronic pain, and chronic low back pain is one of the more common reasons that people are on long-term narcotics for. And that really is a difficult scenario. People are in pain. Um, and this is, I think, one of the reasons and one of the groups of people that are now dependent and addicted to opioids. The interesting issue is once you're on opioids for a couple of weeks, they actually make your pain worse. So now these people truly are in pain. They truly have increased sensitivity to pain and it's like this vicious cycle and then they need increasing doses of their opioids and to treat their pain 
Um, and then it really runs into this vicious cycle. And this is why we're seeing people dying now. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with clinical toxicologist Gina Marafa. We're talking about drug overdoses with opioids, but also the use of multiple drugs. So I want to take you back now to what we started talking about, which were this whole demographic of white middle-aged women who are using multiple drugs. Why is that happening? I mean, is it a result of menopause, access to the drugs, and maybe ignorance in terms of this whole idea of the interaction of these two types of drugs? I think it might be multifactorial, and all of the comments that you made might very well be accurate. It's hard to say exactly why. I do think that for a long time, the people used to think that drug addicts were a certain group of people um, and that it didn't cross socioeconomic statuses. And we know that that's no longer true. Um, Addiction and dependence cross across the board, whether you're teenagers, whether you're middle-aged, whether you're wealthy, whether you're not. Um, And I think that what we're seeing now is just a culmination of a lot of people who are, for whatever reason, were put on an opioid for a medical purpose and now are in this conundrum of needing more opioids. And then you throw in other drugs on top of that and they're they're dying. And it's usually unintentional deaths. This is not suicide deaths that you're talking about. This is people that are taking what they perceive as a therapeutic, quote unquote, dose of their medicine. Yeah. And and I want to talk a little bit about how the government is trying to intervene and how the healthcare system is trying to intervene at this point. But in terms of white middle-aged women, I mean, in terms of what I, I came across a very interesting fact This whole idea with perimenopause and menopause, people are developing more anxiety for a period of time, sleep loss, you know, a loss of sex drive, whatever, and they turn to some of these drugs, not so much even the opioids, but the benzos and the anti-anxiety drugs, and they're already on an opioid, and maybe that's in some way responsible for the fact that these women unknowingly may basically create a very uh, dangerous situation for themselves. Agree completely. And I think that's really what we're seeing is that when you add a benzodiazepine to someone who's taking an opioid, their risk of dying goes up. And I think that that's exactly this patient population. And also when they stopped hormone replacement for these women, exactly at one Mm -hmm. time, that was something that was used as an opportunity to help reduce some of these Mm -hmm. other symptoms. Now those have been taken away. The other fact that I wanted your opinion on is What role do you think it plays in the terms of people's psyche or opinion of all of this that the drugs are prescription drugs as opposed to street drugs or um, illicitly garnered drugs in some way? I mean... I does think, it give does it give credibility to the, its use somehow? I think it absolutely does, right? If your doctor's prescribing you a medication, then there's a medical use for that. Um, and you feel better about that. Um, and there is probably some truth in that. But for, what we do know is that any even prescribed medications, you know, the higher the dose, the more likely it is to cause toxicity or be a poison. Um, so I do think that. We've also seen this shift with prescription opioids now that their people are being a little bit more proactive of not starting people on opioids um, and 
or having decreased availability of opioids. And now we've seen this entire shift where we have a whole group of people that are opioid addicts and now they're turning to things like heroin. And it's always been that heroin were those other people. And now heroin is across the board, people in our communities. In the suburbs. Exactly. It's in our communities, it's in our families, and it's because they're seeking an alternative. So, yes, I think that prescription opioids, people think that they're, quote-unquote, safe and that they're medically prescribed and therefore they don't have a dependence or addiction to them because they have pain. Um, and now that's that whole paradigm shift to now why people are using heroin, I think that the increased amount of heroin use is directly related to the prescription opioid epidemic that we face. So more, as you mentioned earlier, you mentioned the I-STOP program. That's a New York mm -hmm. State program. But the point is the government has begun to intervene, recognizing the dangers of these drugs and trying to limit or at least make prescribers extremely accountable and to keep track of the people who might be drug shopping or doctor shopping mm -hmm. so they could continue. So do you think that's been effective? I, I do. I think I applaud the government for, for doing these type of programs and recognizing that there's a problem. So I do think that it's effective. I think that it's a reasonable approach. The only, the biggest problem with that is we tended to forget that there are now a whole group of people that were already dependent and addicted and other resources like programs and recovery, those didn't increase, right? So now we have, so for someone newly getting started on opioids, it's probably a really good thing and we're proactive. Um, but there's this whole generation of people that are dependent on opioids. And so, and we didn't face those other issues of, of treating their addiction. So I guess the bottom line is, first of all, very briefly, because I don't want to run out of time, what is withdrawal like? And can people beat this on their own? And if not, what options are there? Well, so there's, so dr opioid withdrawal is they feel like they have the flu. They feel generally awful. Um, people describe it as the worst time of their life. So, which is why it makes people very difficult to come off of their drugs. Certainly programs, um, there's a lot of programs locally um, that have opioid programs as well as there are some medications sometimes that people can be used to help their withdrawal and to maintain their um, to maintain their essentially their life without an addicting opioid um, and it all depends right there's a lot of resources um, but certainly the first step is admitting a problem and seeking out help is the most important thing but the other thing you said in very little bit of time now is that the government or there need to be made more resources available for these people and not just cut off the supply. There absolutely needs to be more resources. Thank you so much. My guest has been Gina Maroff, a clinical toxicologist with Upstate's New York Poison Center. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.